What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes. Going into the All-Star break, I thought I was going to have two episodes, one culminating the pre-All-Star period and then one previewing the post-All-Star period. However, I decided to give myself a little bit of rest, try to combine it into one episode and put all these stats together all the way through. So the top topics for this episode, the Mavs, the Pelicans, and the Thunder, as always. For the Mavs, they've played three games now with P.J. Washington and Daniel Gafford, the new pieces they've acquired at the trade deadline. And so we'll take a look at the Mavs' trends since they made those acquisitions. For the Pelicans, they took care of business with three straight wins and seven of their last eight. They've won seven of eight. And now we're going to look at how do they stay in the top six? Because right now, they're looking pretty good in the playoff standings. And then for the Thunder, they've rebounded from their losses to Utah and Dallas with wins against Sacramento and Orlando. And they now have a new piece in Bismack Biombo. So we'll take a look at his impact on this Thunder team. Now, let's start with the Mavs and P.J. Washington and Daniel Gafford. They're... Standard stats that you can pretty much find anywhere. P.J. Washington is averaging 29.3 minutes per game, scoring 8.7 points per game, shooting 40.7% from the floor, and getting 5.3 rebounds per game. So not to his best caliber when you look at the actual numbers, but we're going to talk about his impact in just a second. For Daniel Gafford, his numbers are eye-popping, right? 21.3 minutes per game scoring 15 points per game, shooting 61.3% from the floor, 12 rebounds per game, and 2.3 blocks per game. So his numbers are, are outstanding, and he's adding impact, right? So both of these guys are impact players. And so for now, let's take a look at the advanced player stats over the last three games, so since February 10th and ending February 15th. On the rebounding side, Daniel Gafford is providing a 24.2% rebounding percentage. So to provide some context there, he's first among 208 NBA players with 20 or more minutes per game in that span. The defensive rating among 172 NBA players with 24 minutes per game actually has a lot of Mavericks on this list. And at the very top is P.J. Washington, right? So the basic stats we're not really showing much progression for him, but if you look deeper, look at advanced stats, look at his impact on the floor, now you start seeing something from P.J., right? So P.J. Washington has an 89.1 defensive rating, first among 172 NBA players with 24 or more minutes per game. Right behind him is actually Maxi Kleba at 92.4. Behind him is Luka Doncic, of all people, at 93.8, and we know Luka has played better defense this season. In this stretch, in the last week, going into the All-Star break, Luka has played exceptionally well on defense, so he's third among those players. Kyrie Irving is at a 97.1 defensive rating and ranks ninth on that list. Josh Green is behind him at 98.2, which is 14th on the list, and Tim Hardaway Jr. is at a 101.9, which is 17th on the list. So you have six different Mavericks in the top 10% of this list of defensive players 
who are on the floor for more than half of the game. That's why I picked 24 minutes per game and because Maxi averages 24 and a half minutes per game. So it shows with all of those pieces on the floor, all of them working in sync, all of them helping the spacing on the offensive end and then turning it around on the defensive side of the ball, they are they are really formidable now that they have all of these pieces together. As a team, let's look at their efficiency ratings since February 10th. Dallas is one of five teams to go 3-0 and from February 10th to the 15th. Their offensive rating in that stretch is 116.9, which ranks 12th in the NBA. Their defensive rating, get a kick out of this, they're 96.9, which led the league that week. They're the only team that had under 100 in the defensive rating category. And their net rating was 20, which is third in the NBA. Now let's look at their defensive improvements because you can check by zone how well they're defending shooters. In the mid-range, Dallas is defending mid-range shooters and among 191 players with five or more mid-range field goal attempts defended, Derek Jones Jr., defends at 37.2%, which is seventh in the NBA. So when Derek Jones Jr. is defending any mid-range player or defending a player who's shooting a mid-range jumper, that player will convert only 37.2% of those shots. That's not a good shooting percentage for any player from that distance because generally you want to shoot over 40%, over 45% from within the three-point line. So for him to have it that low at seventh, that's that's in the season. And then just for Derrick Jones Jr., I'll also mark in, he defends the corner threes really well because opponents only shoot 34.4%, and that makes him fourth in the NBA among 140 players with five or more opponent corner three-point field goal attempts. Luka is also on this list of 191 players with five or more mid-range field goal attempts defended. He's, his defense is at 37.3%, which is 10th in the NBA. Kyrie is at 37.5%, which is 13th. And Derek Lively the second is at 37.7%, which is right behind Kyrie, at 14th. And then the Mavs three-point defense in February, I actually saw this this morning, they only allow 32.3% from three as a whole this entire month. That's second in the NBA. So this notion that Dallas doesn't play great defense or Luka and Kyrie don't play great defense, that's not what we're seeing in the numbers. It's really reflecting not only this season, but as of late, they've gotten even better than they were early on in the year. And then on the offensive side of the ball, now that you have these two new guys who are great lob threats, who are shoot, who PJ Washington is a shooting threat, Gafford is a lob threat, adding to the formidable offense of the Mavericks, the Mavs have shifted from the three-point line to shooting twos, which is what I had been asking for all year long and all of last year. So let's look at these numbers here. The Mavs three-point field goal attempts this season averages 40.3, which is second most in the NBA. For context, last year, they attempted 41 threes, which was third most in the NBA. Their three-point rate this season was 44.9%, which was 
which is the second highest in the NBA. Last season, though, it was 48.7%, which was the highest in the NBA. So there's almost a 4% drop in three-point rate, which is the attempt, which is the uh, percentage of all of your field goal attempts coming from three. So still less than half, but now it's dropped a little bit. And then the Mavs' three-point field goal percentage this season, the conversion of all those attempts, they shoot 37.3% from three, which is 10th in the NBA. Last season, they shot 37.1%, and that was good for eighth in the NBA. So they're shooting a little bit better from three, but a lot of teams are actually shooting better from three than they were last year. However, in this stretch, from February 10th to the 15th, remember, 43-point attempts per game, about a 45% three-point rate, converting about 37% from the floor. Look at these numbers here. From February 10th to February 15th, the Mavs' three-point field goal attempts are at 34.7. 34.7. That's 13th most in the NBA. Their three-point rate is now at 37.3%, which is the eighth lowest in the NBA. That is a major shift from the identity of this team. And then their three-point field goal percentage, here's the funny thing. They're shooting 33.7%, which is 20th in the NBA. And what's even weirder about that is that they shoot 31.8% with the nearest defender being six or more feet away. And according to NBA.com, they define that as being wide open. That percentage, 31.8%, ranks 27th in the NBA. So the further a defender is, the less likely the Mavs are converting their threes. Doesn't seem to make sense. What does make sense is that they're recognizing they're not shooting well from three as of right now. Why that is, guys are just missing shots, or maybe defenses are recognizing that the Mavs want to shoot threes. But because of that, and now their willingness to go inside, their offense is much more potent. And they look more balanced. And they look like they can beat anybody and match up with anybody. So what is the Mavericks ceiling this year? Because you've got teams like Minnesota, OKC, the LA Clippers, the Denver Nuggets in the top four all jumbling around in those spots. And then you're dealing with Phoenix and New Orleans and Sacramento within your area, Golden State and the LA Lakers are right behind you. So where, who do the Mavs match up well with? If you look at that Thunder game, you can make an argument that they matched up with, they can match up with anybody. They can match up well with the Thunder, for sure. They can match up well with Minnesota, now that they have more bigs, now that they have a better offense and they have a better defense. They, they can overtake the Timberwolves. They can take down the Lakers, again, with this big lineup. The Suns might be an interesting matchup, and we're going to find that out tonight as I'm recording this on Thursday, February 22nd. So we're going to take a look at what the Mavericks are going to do with all these new guys, with, with this new makeup, this new chemistry against this Phoenix Suns team. Sacramento, same thing. DeMontis Sabonis being your, norm, being your main big guy. Now Dallas has the size to match them. They have the shooting. 
to match them. They also have the playmaker in Luka Doncic to match them. Based on how the Mavs may end up in the playoff seating, they might go as high as four because the other because there are four teams that are just they're they're slightly ahead of them, a few games ahead of them. But if the trends continue, the Mavs may be in the four or the five, maybe even the six spot. But if there's any team that can skyrocket these West standings, I believe it is the Dallas Mavericks because this is such a this is such a shift from where they were earlier in the year. And considering they have not been healthy all season long, the fact that they are almost 100% now, the one piece they're missing is Dante Exum, and he is a pivotal piece to this Mavericks team. Having all of those guys back, going for a playoff push, the cliche is that no one wants to see this team in the playoffs. Yeah, no one wants to see Dallas in the playoffs, but if you're good, no one wants to see you in the playoffs anyway. So Dallas to me, has a shot of making the NBA Finals. Not just the Western Conference Finals, but the NBA Finals. And of course, that has to do with who they face, what what side of the bracket they're going to be on. That matters more than anything. But based on how the Mavs can play with this group, if they're healthy, and if Jason Kidd gets these rotations right, they can make the NBA Finals. At least that should be anticipated. All right, so they're not the only team that I cover. We're going to talk about the Pelicans and the Thunder in the next segment, so don't go away. Let's look at the New Orleans Pelicans and how well that they have assisted and played with pace so far the pelicans this year are 19 and 4 when any three players on the floor each have five or more assists in a game needless to say i mean i've said it for a while i've also had great help when we're broadcasting talking to talent talking with producers and checking with evs operators looking at all the video the pelicans move the ball they really share the ball really well the spacing is incredible and it's showing in these numbers with the way that they win games so they're 19 and 4 this year when any three players each have five assists in a game they're 9 and 1 when specifically Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum each have five or more assists and the Pelicans are 16 and 3 when the whole team has 30 or more assists in a game. And of those games, they've won five straight and 13 of their last 14. So there's a, there's a lot to say about how the Pelicans move the ball. What it takes for them to get that maximum spacing has been a point of contention for plenty of people in the basketball world. I'll, uh, I'll talk about that in just a second. First, I do want to bring in this caveat, which some, sometimes numbers don't make sense. The big three, the three that I just mentioned, Zion, BI, and CJ, have a minus 2.6 net rating, which is the third worst among all Pelicans three-man lineups with 200 or more minutes played this season. However, this three-man lineup creates the fastest pace 
among those Pelicans three-man lineups with 200 or more minutes played, which is 102.44 in the pace category. So J.J. Redick on, on The Old Man in the Three, Old Man in the Three Things, he's also on ESPN, he's talked about this concept of point Zion. Madison Hawk has also mentioned how effective it is in the James Borrego system to have Zion Williamson bring the ball up. And the points that they have made are that because Zion is the one who's bringing the ball up, you have a bigger defender coming up at the top of the key, and it makes it difficult for the defense to defend the paint, which is where Zion is going to go. And if they can end up defending the paint, it compromises that defense's three-point defense, that team's three-point defense. And so that leaves open shooters like B.I., like C.J., like Trey Murphy III, like Jordan Hawkins. And Herb Jones has been shooting the three ball really well this year as well. So their starting lineup, the, the Pelicans' starting lineup that has played the most minutes of any lineup, they're really effective when Zion is bringing the ball up the court. And so that might be why the Pelicans did not pull the trigger on going for a point guard at the trade deadline because... Zion being the point guard basically breaks everybody else's defense. It's just a matter of, can he do it all game long? Can he do it to the point where he compromises the defense so much that they have no answer? And he's done that for stretches. Of course, he's not going to play all 48 minutes in a game. So there have to be other ways for the Pelicans to make up that offense. But for the most part, that concept seems to be what's what the Pelicans want to do. And as of February, they've done a lot better. They've performed a lot better. They've executed a lot better. And so things are probably starting to flow in a way that Willie Green has been expecting now. So let's look at the Pelicans in February in the clutch, because this has been a hot topic about New Orleans. They have not been good in the clutch all season, but this month they really turned it around. They're 3 and 0 in clutch games this month and they're only one of five teams to go undefeated in clutch games. One of three teams to win three or more clutch games while being undefeated. 6 and 10 in clutch games entering February. So they're currently 9 and 10, but the fact that they were 6 and 10, winning only 6 of their 16 games and then winning 3 in a row, no matter who it is, the fact that you're now executing in the clutch means you're starting to find those improvements. And what has contributed to those wins? One of the biggest improvements I've seen is in their clutch free, th free throw shooting. They are 9 of 9, 100% from the line in February. So they're averaging three free throw attempts in the clutch, in those clutch games. And only Atlanta has more clutch free throws without a miss this season. So... Atlanta has 13 out of 13. New Orleans is second with nine out of nine. And just for more context, the Pelicans entered February with a league worst 61% clutch free throw percentage. 61%. That's god awful. And the fact that they have completely flipped it and they're currently perfect, they look like the Mavericks from the free throw line in the clutch because the maps have been fantastic. But now the Pelicans can do this. They can win closer games. I want to see this throughout the rest of the season going into the spring. 
in this playoff push, if they can continue this, they are one of those sleepers that people may not have expected because of how dominant the top four have been. But you got to watch out for New Orleans. On top of how they've played in the clutch, let's look at how they've played in the miscellaneous categories because this is also important. They have scored 23.7 points off turnovers per game in February. That's first in the NBA. For the season, they score 17.4, which is fifth. On second chance points, the Pelicans score 16.9 second chance points per game this month, which is fifth in the NBA. For the season, they average 14.7, which is 10th. Then on the defensive side of this miscellaneous section, in February, opponents only score only score 10.6 second chance points per game this month, which is tied for third in the NBA. So the Pelicans have T-Dash, third best second chance defense in the NBA. Opponents only score 12.7 fast break points per game this month, which is the fifth best defense in the NBA. And then Pelicans opponents only score 48.9 paint points per game this month, and that ties seventh in the NBA. Then the Pelicans three-point defense this season versus February has taken a shift because earlier in the season I mentioned that the Pelicans three-point defense was Great in the first quarter, fantastic in the second, with a big drop-off in the third, and sometimes an even worse situation in the fourth, more or less. That's kind of changed now. So the Pelicans' three-point defense right now is a league-best 34.6% overall across all quarters. They lead the league at a 34.6% opponent three-point field goal percentage. In the first quarter, they allow they hold opponents to 33.8% from three, which is second in the NBA. In February, it's 34.4%, which is 12th. So there's the drop-off, right? Just a little bit, because it's less than it's less than a point percentage, or percentage point, I should say. In the second quarter, this is the biggest deviation because for the season, It was 31.5%, which is first in the NBA. But their three-point defense in the second quarter in February is at 41.8%, which is 22nd in the NBA. So that's the biggest drop-off. But then in the third quarter, where they, for the season, they allow 36.1%, which is 11th in the NBA, that's because of this recent stretch in February where they're only allowing 28.1% from three This month, which is third in the NBA. And then in the fourth quarter, the final frame where everything matters, this season they're allowing 37.3%, which is 24th in the NBA. So that looks bad. But if you look at it in February, they're allowing only 34.5%, which is 10th. So they've gotten better in their second half three-point defense, but their first half three-point defense has tapered off a little bit. And immensely in the second quarter. So now it's a matter of staying consistent on that three-point defense the whole game. Because when you can do that, especially in a seven-game series, you have a better advantage considering your offensive prowess. So how far can the Pelicans go? Again, it's about matchups. They match up really well with Sacramento. They can match up with the Lakers if they play hard, if they play fast, if they can outmatch LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And the way Anthony Davis is playing this year, it's kind of hard to do, but... 
that far into the season, the Pelicans have the firepower to do so, especially if they can hold the Lakers defense, hold the Lakers three point shooting, because that's where the Lakers tend to have more offensive firepower. Can they match up with the Thunder? That depends. It depends on how well the Thunder play defense against the way the Pelicans want to operate on offense. Do they match up well with the Mavericks? I don't, I'm not so sure just yet. They, that, that matchup would go toe to toe because of just how well those offenses can roll. I have more trust in the Mavericks in this sense because even if the Pelicans can stop the Mavs three point shooting, the Mavs are outstanding in the paint now and they're willing to go inside. So it's a matter of diagnosing what mismatches you can get and exploiting the weaknesses of your opponent. But there are plenty of opportunities for the Pelicans to make a run in these playoffs and potentially make the Western Conference Finals depending on how that bracket shakes out. Because you, because of health as well, you don't know how Phoenix is going to be because of Bradley Beal's injury. Will Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and Bradley Beal all be on the floor by the playoffs? We don't know. The same thing with the Clippers. When they're at full strength, it's very difficult to determine if you can overpower a team like that. But if one of those guys goes down, how does that affect LA? But the Pelicans, in my estimation, can make the Western Conference Finals just depending on the bracket and how well they, that they can execute. Now for the Thunder, let's transition to them. They picked up Bismack Biombo mainly because they needed more depth at the center position. The only pieces they got at the trade deadline was Gordon Hayward, who's a forward, but he's not someone that addresses their needs in rebounding and paint defense. And on top of the depth aspect for Biombo, he provides postseason experience. So he's played 40 career playoff games. A lot of them, 20 of them came with Toronto in 2015, 2016, which ultimately ended, I believe, with LeBron James and you know the legend of LeBronto. However, Biombo's been there. He's done that. Same with Shea. Same with Gordon Hayward. They have postseason experience. The more of that they can get, the easier it's going to be for the Thunder to make sense of what's going on in real time as they progress in the playoffs. His rebounding and defense is key here because he's got 6.4 rebounds per game this season. On the offensive glass, he's getting 1.9 offensive rebounds per game, 4.5 defensive rebounds per game, and 1.1 blocks per game. So he's providing another layer that allows Chet to pick and pop and not sacrifice the paint. Of course, Shea has found exploits getting into the paint, even if Chet doesn't follow him there, doesn't roll to the paint. Bismack Biombo can do the same thing. He's an excellent screener. He can go to the basket and roll with any guys who, let's say a guard comes in and they do multiple pick and rolls. They can navigate getting through a defense with those guys, even though Biombo is not a shooter per se. But really their rebounding is the key because the fact that they don't rebound, that the Thunder don't rebound well, having him fortify the glass will help that margin for error for the Thunder. He also scores at an efficient clip. He's shooting 56.3% from the floor this season, which is actually in the middle of the pack if you look at his season-by-season numbers. 
but that's still more than half of your shots. You'd like that out of your center who you can effectively go to, and he is a threat inside. From the free throw line, not so much, but he's good inside. As a team, the Thunder are still really good when you look at their advanced stats and efficiency ratings. From the offensive side of the ball, they have a 119.2 offensive rating, which is fourth in the NBA. And they're second in the West, only behind the LA Clippers. They have a 111.9 defensive rating, which is fourth in the NBA as well. They are also second in the West, this time behind Minnesota. And their defensive rating in February, 111.9 seems a little high for OKC. This is why. They had, they took a hit with a three-game stretch in February where they allowed 124 or more points per game. And in February, they have a 118 defensive rating, which is 22nd in the NBA. Of course, when you look at the Thunder's results from those three games, this is specifically those losses to uh, the, the win against Toronto that went into double overtime. So, of course... That is not 100% what I'm talking about there. That's a lot of points, but double overtime is going to gonna do that for you. It's that you, you had three straight games where you're coming off of a big double overtime game, and then you lose 124-117 to Utah, and then 146-111. to That game, more than anything, because the Mavs scored 146 on them in regulation, 47 in the first quarter, that contributed to their drop-off in the defensive rating. But they still have the fourth-best defense in the NBA, despite that blip. So it's not really like they can't rebound. They'll, they'll be fine. Their net rating is 7.3, which is second in the NBA for the season. And they are first in the West. So again, top 10 offense, top 10 defense means that you're one of the best teams in the NBA. They're top five in both. They're top two in their conference. So although we talked about, you know, where, where the Thunder have issues, where they excel, like they're, they're still all season long, they're still one of the best teams in the NBA and should be looked at as so. Let's take a look at their miscellaneous categories as well because they are effective here too. They scored 19.6 points off turnovers per game this season, which is first in the NBA. They score 14.9 fast break points per game, which is 10th in the NBA. And they score 53 paint points per game, which is sixth in the NBA. And then on the defensive side of those categories, they allow 14.7 points off turnovers per game, which is fourth best in the NBA. 11.9 fast break points per game, this season, which is second best in the NBA, and they allow only 46 and a half paint points per game, which is fourth in the NBA. So not only are they effective on the offensive miscellaneous categories, on the defensive side of them, opponents can't seem to get by. At least as a whole, there are certain matchups where that's a different story because they have had trouble with the LA teams, specifically the Lakers, because of the size mismatch. And now we'll see what Biombo does for that. And then for the Mavericks, because they fortified their offense and their defense, they were able to just throw punches, throw haymakers at the Thunder. 
So now it's time for SGA, Chet, J-Dub to step up in ways that they've been doing all season, but now to another level in order to take the Thunder to places they haven't seen since the Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook era. What to look out for with these acquisitions of Gordon Hayward and Bismack Biombo really is how they gel with the bench players of OKC, such as Kaysen Wallace, Isaiah Joe, Jalen Williams, Jay Will, Jalen Williams, Kenrich Williams, et cetera, et cetera. So how that unit operates. And of course, there's going to be a mix and a match with all the lineups that coach Mark Dagnall is going to put together. But with those guys, the veterans that they are helping those younger guys out will potentially give the Thunder even more of a lift when you have guys like SGA and Chet and J-Dub off the floor. And of course, that starting lineup of SGA, Chet, J-Dub, Josh Giddy, Lou Dort, it's already a tough lineup to deal with. So the Thunder's rotation is looking really good. What is their ceiling now? Again, based on matchup, I have an issue with how this team is going to perform if the Lakers get the eight spot and let's say the, the Thunder are one or if the Lakers are somehow seventh and the Thunder are two. If there's any situation where the Thunder play the Lakers, it's going to be a tightly contested series. It might go seven. They might even lose it. Mainly because of the mismatches that LeBron and AD provide against the Thunder. But if the Thunder are able to clean up the glass. Again, that's, that's always back to the rebounding. If they can fix that with who they brought in and put more of an effort on the glass and make sure that even if they can't rebound as well as they want to, that they make up for it in other categories, then they have a shot against Sacramento. They could potentially beat the Lakers. They can beat the Warriors although the Warriors have been playing a lot better as of late. And with Brandon Pashemsky, you, you don't know how this matchup is going to look because they played the Warriors early on in the season. The way the Warriors play now is not how they played then. So it's going to take a little rewiring to figure out how that matchup is going to go. But the Thunder now, with the way Shea is playing at an MVP level, they can make the finals as well. Again, it's all about matchups who they're going to meet, who they're going to face, who they don't have to face. It's going to it's going to be a tough road, especially with that lack of rebounding. That's going to be the biggest key for them. But that's their ceiling to me, the NBA Finals. They could get that far. If if not that far then the Western Conference Finals for sure. Again, depends on the matchups. It's still we're still not even 60 games into the season. So that's where I'm at right now with those teams. All right. Next up, we're going to take a look at what I think about All-Star Weekend, specifically the All-Star Game, because I was not a fan of that last night. And then we'll take a look at some upcoming matchups. That's next. Can we just talk about All-Star Weekend for a little bit. The first night, obviously, the skills competition, Rising Star, the Rising Stars tournament was fun watching the young kids go out. The G League team provided surprises and taking down Team Pau Gasol, led by Victor Wembanyama. 
the skills challenge, I think other people have already made their case about you know what to do with that. I'm not really looking at that specific day, that competition. The best part about the weekend for me is now the three-point contest more than anything else. The dunk contest has not been as exciting. That is another debate for really another day. Don't have much time for that right now. But the, the Steph and Sabrina matchup, that competition was probably the most fun I had watching all weekend. And I want to see more of that. Of course, people are believing that Caitlin Clark will probably go into the WNBA draft and get drafted by the Indiana Fever, bringing her in and then bringing Steph and Dame and Sabrina again and possibly doing a, a, a tournament style between them would elevate the, the WNBA as well as the NBA and just provide a bit more excitement to that day as a whole. What kind of makes the whole weekend sulk is that all-star game and just how atrocious it is. How atrocious it's become. That game where the East won 211 to 186, won by 25, scoring the most points in all-star game history, 397 total points scored. That was pathetic. That was putrid. The first quarter, okay, like a lot of scoring, but it was somewhat close, somewhat competitive. It just started to die off. And then Steph Curry and the West started to come back a little bit, and then the East just kind of ran away with all that. Adam Silver, Larry Bird, Joe Dumars, like they've tried getting the players to care. The players are, in, are implying that you need to pay them even more than they're already getting paid for them to care for something that they publicly say is an honor. Now we all know that's just PR and marketing and, uh, and the public relations, uh, that public relations side of answering questions like that. Really, there are only a few options you have if you're Adam Silver. Either one, you acquiesce to the players and you pay them or have them compete for a cash prize similar to the in-season tournament, similar to how MLB All-Star does things now, on top of the charity work that, or the charity donations that are going through because of this event, in, in case you, you want them to be incentivized even more. Although I've been critical of the league when it comes to the 65-game rule because of how injuries play and how it affects the body, this is not one of those times where I'm going to be siding with the players. I don't believe you need more money to be incentivized to play a game that has meant something for for generations, for decades, for years. Like it's you don't when you play in the summertime at Rucker Park, at Proams like Seattle or the Drew League, you're playing hard. Chet Holmgren was trying to block LeBron James and broke his foot and missed the whole season. You're risking season-ending injuries in the summer. Right, So by that logic, if you're willing to do that in the summer, how are you not willing to do that in the All-Star game? Right, I know that may sound tone deaf for someone who's not a player to people who are playing. But if you're willing to risk season-ending injuries at one point of the year, 
then you must be willing to have season-ending injuries at any point of the year. Right? Otherwise, you're picking and choosing what matters and what doesn't. Right? You're, this is an opportunity to get better because you're playing against the best players in the league. You don't get a chance to do that unless you're playing for Team USA or at these pro-ams. There, there aren't many opportunities like this. So that may be one way to do it. If that ends up working, fine, whatever, I guess. Go you. Another option would be to eliminate the game entirely. Because what's the point? It, as a, on the broadcasting side of this, I don't see the point in broadcasting a game that's that bad. I really don't. And so, and then that leads to the NBA having to deal with the fact that, okay, if they want to sell this all-star package, if they want it to have value to sell to a broadcaster, it has to be worth something. Right now, it's not worth much. Those of us watching the broadcast, we're thinking, what's going on here? What's the point? Why would we buy that? That doesn't make any sense. So then that leads to another option, which is actually going to be the most controversial thing I say here, that if you, let's say you tie, why not tie the All-Star game and the winning conference getting home court advantage in the NBA Finals? I've gone back and forth about this idea because on, on one day I'll wake up and I'll say, you know what, that, screw it. Nothing else is working. Let's just go radical. Let's go with that. Really make the players understand, okay, look, you're not going to make this, you're not going to make this exciting. We'll make it, we'll make it exciting. Then you have to account for how that affects teams that are really playing well throughout the rest of the regular season, because the NBA has made a point of making the entire regular season important. You can't do that if certain games at the end of the season don't matter anymore because you know you're not going to get home court advantage due to your conference not winning that all-star game. Now, the only teams, here's where I also go back and forth now. The, the only teams that will get affected by this rule are the two teams that make the NBA Finals. This doesn't affect you in the first round, the second round, the third round at all. Based on where you are in the conference, you'll still get home court, and it's only those last two teams. And those last two teams, at that point, when you have three seven-game series that you have to overcome in order to make the NBA Finals, you are the two best teams in your conference. And so, for you to get that far, you probably have an all-star on your team who can make, who can have a say in whether or not your team gets home court based on how you perform in the All-Star game. You fight through it. Say, hey, this is, this is for down the line. It's, prob- it's not something that can be implemented at any point in the next seven years because it has to be put into a new CBA. And they just signed this most recent one, which means that the, ne- the earliest that they could implement a rule like this would be 2029. So no, it's not going to happen anytime soon. It also may not happen ever. There's going to be a lot of debate about that. It's just something that was that came up in my mind. Something I decided, why not throw out? Let me talk about it. See what happens. It is an option. If Adam Silver is as disgusted as he was when he presented that trophy and said, 
to the Eastern Conference. You scored the most points. Well, congratulations. That That's a direct quote. <laughs> All right, so we can't have this continue if the All-Star game is to mean something. That's my point. All right, so that's it for All-Star Weekend. Let's move on to what we're going to talk about in the next episode. It's going to be a recap of week 18. And based on how my work schedule is going, I'm going to try to get that out next Thursday. All right. Now, the National NBA tip-off on February 22nd, Thursday. That's tonight. The Suns and the Mavericks will play at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the Lakers and the Warriors at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on TNT. Then, Friday, February 23rd, the Cavs and the Sixers will play at 7.30 Eastern, 6.30 Central on ESPN, followed by the Bucks and the Timberwolves at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN. Saturday, February 24th, the Celtics will play the Knicks at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central on ABC. And then on Sunday, there are four games. Now that football's over, we got a whole slate of games on a Sunday. Sunday, February 25th, we've got the Bucks and the Sixers at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Central on ABC, followed by the Lakers and the Suns at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Central on ABC. And then on ESPN, the Nuggets and the Warriors will play at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central. And then following that game, also on ESPN, will be the Kings and the Clippers at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 8.30 p.m. Central. Then across local television... On Thursday, February 22nd, the Rockets will play the Pelicans at 8-7 Central on Space City Home Network and Valley Sports New Orleans. And the Clippers and the Thunder will face off also at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports SoCal and Valley Sports Oklahoma. Then Friday, February 23rd, the Wizards and the Thunder will play at 8-7 Central on Monument and Valley Sports Oklahoma. And the Heat and the Pelicans will play at the same time 8-7 Central on Valley Sports Sun and Valley Sports New Orleans. And then Sunday, February 25th, all three teams play. The Mavericks will play the Pacers at 5-4 Central on Valley Sports Southwest and Valley Sports Indiana. Then the Thunder and the Rockets will play at 7-6 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and Space City Home Network. And the Bulls and the Pelicans will also play at 7-6 Central on NBC Sports Chicago and Valley Sports New Orleans. So that does it for me for this episode. Thank you again for watching and listening. I enjoy hearing back from all of you and checking out how all these stats are improving. There's a lot of views coming in, a lot of downloads. It's just been fantastic watching the growth of this podcast and it's because of you guys. So thank you very much for consuming this content. That does it for me. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, signing off.